Welcome to the first episode of the Queering Museums podcast. Queering Museums is an online museum of queerness, sharing LGBTQ museum content in all its many forms. The podcast came about as a way to hear from the LGBTQ people who work in museums and to see how they help bring that queer content to life in their institutions. So we've put together four episodes for this first season of the podcast, all to celebrate LGBT History Month. We'll be hearing from 13 different people in those episodes, each telling their own stories of life as a queer museum worker. Before we get started with the first one, the team would like to say a huge thank you to everyone who contributed to the series. Without further ado, here's Lauren. Hi, my name is Lauren and I am a museum educator. Um, I'm a cis white lesbian and I'm in a relationship with a trans woman and we live in Washington, D.C. My voice is a little hoarse right now because we actually just came back from the Women's March on Washington, which was, by the way, completely amazing. Hello. Are you still awake out there? Are you sure about that? Can you hear me? Are you ready to shake up the world? My perspective as a queer person really informs my museum work. Um, I work a lot with children. And in that sense, I'm very much concerned with like making sure that children feel respected and welcome no matter what their interests are. Uh, the space that I work in is specifically for kids six and younger. And oftentimes uh, by that age, uh, kids understand gender stereotyping and are often directed by caregivers into different types of activities. And our space is intentionally gender neutral and we allow kids to play with whatever they like. You have a kitchen, we have blocks. I'll often direct little girls to play with blocks or little boys to play in the kitchen. These are skills that all kids at all age levels need. And I feel like my perspective as a, a queer person, really, um, I really want to help kids get out of those sort of stereotype gender roles. In that sense, it's completely okay for a little girl to like cooking in the kitchen or for a little boy to like blocks, but the reverse is also true as well. I also feel that my perspective as a queer person um, has really helped me open my colleagues' eyes to the different types of families that can be made up. You know, we don't all live in a nuclear family of one mommy and one daddy and 2.5 kids. Uh, Margaret Middleton, who's a, an exhibit designer, design, uh, developed a really wonderful um, spreadsheet of gender-neutral ways to refer to parents and caregivers. So oftentimes when children are in our exhibit at our, my museum that I work at, we will not refer to parents or mommies or daddies. We'll say, where's your grown up? Where's your adult? Respecting fully well that, you know, a kid could have a mom and a stepdad or a kid could be a different race than his two mommies or a kid could be in the care of their grandparents. So I feel like my perspective as a queer person um, helps you be a little bit more sensitive to the great diversity of different types of families that there are. My name's Margaret Middleton, and I'm an independent exhibit designer. Being a queer activist and an intersectional feminist, I try to bring a social justice lens to my work. This isn't inherent in my queer identity, but my queer community definitely influences my values and beliefs. I created the Family Inclusive Language Chart. It's a tool that suggests words to avoid when interacting with the public and offers alternatives. 
I created the chart because in my queer communities, I've seen so many beautiful ways that people create families. But our language is full of turns of phrases that discriminate against and exclude them. I think starting with language can help challenge assumptions about who a family can be. As a kid, I liked to read about strong, adventurous women like Amelia Earhart, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Rachel Carson. At the time, I had no idea that my heroes were lesbians and queer women. I wonder now what it would have been like to grow up knowing I had more in common with them than I realized. I'm working toward a future where children are taught a more complete history, one that reflects all their identities. Yeah, I've experienced conflict in the workplace because of my identity. That's one of the reasons I support the work of Museums Respond to Ferguson and Museum Workers Speak. They're talking openly about workplace discrimination and working towards making museums more equitable workplaces. I think LGBTQ history is important because as queer people, we need to know the stories of those who came before us. And children need to know that they're not alone. And true LGBTQ history means that every letter in the acronym gets representation. Broad representation. That history can't be limited to the stories of white, cis, gay men. Current queer people that I find really inspiring right now are a lot of trans rights activists. Um, today at the Women's March, I had the great fortune of literally running into Lana Wachowski. I kind of watched her like a creep from afar. Um, Janet Mock was there. I know that Hari Neff was in attendance. And lots of trans women um, across the uh, world that I admire were also participating in marches. Thank you so much, Cameron. Los Angeles, how are you feeling today? Women's March, how are you feeling today? I feel so blessed, so grateful to be standing before all of you today, to be standing with you, all of you today, all of your beautiful faces. And you have all come out today to declare that you will not be silent. In many ways, uh, gay rights and lesbian rights have made great, huge strides, especially in white cis communities. But um, I firmly believe that trans rights are about 15 to 20 years where gay rights are currently. And we have a lot of catching up to do. I mean, sisterhood is not just about our C-I-S-T-E-Rs. It's, we need to um, help catch the trans community up to where the rest of us are. It's not true liberation until we all achieve the same thing. So in that sense, I'm very, very inspired by all of our trans women, uh, sisters, and trans femmes around the world who are making great strides towards equality. I feel like I'm surrounded by uh, wonderful queer people um, kind of at all levels of the organizations that I've worked for. Again, the one demographic that's missing seems to be trans people and also queer people of color. Um, uh, but again, I don't feel like being uh, queer in any way has really held me back from a museum career. In fact, I'm really glad that the museum world seems to be absolutely filled with queer people. That's great. The one frustration I do have about working in museums is that even though 
uh, behind the scenes, it's one big giant pride fest, is that what is often presented to the public is not gay at all. I feel that in the interest of being um, respectful to more conservative visitors, oftentimes queer histories are shoved under the rug or they're hidden or um, put out of the way. I know, for example, in my museum, uh, it's um, meant to sort of show the breadth of American history, but there's only two explicit examples of queer culture anywhere in the museum. Um, One is a picture of the White House lit up in the pride flag, and the other is a gay wedding topper. Both of these examples are very cis-focused, very focused on gay men, and they're also very focused on marriage equality. The fight's not over. Um, You can still be fired or evicted for being gay or trans in more than half of the states in the union right now. Um, And so much more about our lives is more than just the ability to get married. Um, Another example is at the museum where I currently work, there's a display of pottery of the Saturday Evening Girls Club. Now, as a giant pottery nerd, I know that the Saturday Evening Girls Club was started by two lesbians in Boston, specifically to help immigrant women learn a skill. And in my museum, it's just a display of nice pots. No mention of queer history, no mention of immigrant history, no nothing. So I think it's really important to um, expose a bigger public to queer history. Because uh, oftentimes I think the public has a really big misunderstanding of what queer history really is. They think it starts in the 60s with the Stonewall riots and, you know, ends with Caitlyn Jenner. Um, but really, queer people have been here since the very beginning. And I think it's really up to museum professionals to start bringing out the hidden. Um, queer people are all over American history, they're all over world history. Um, there's even stories that I don't quite know just yet. And I'm really excited to see what the future will bring, but I think that museums need to be not so afraid of being offensive uh, and or getting complaints about showing the wonderful breadth of what queer people have done. Hi, my name is Dan Vo, and I've been an ambassador at the V&A Museum, the Victorian Albert Museum, since 2013. I'm a member of the museum's LGBTQ, that's the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender and Queer Working Group, the LGBTQ Working Group, and uh, I've worked in radio production for more than a decade, and I've been writing and speaking about queer history for quite a while, um, about the same time, I suppose. And not so long ago at the V&A, I was very pleased to have uh, been invited to speak about uh, the LGBTQ history of Vietnam, which is where my parents are from, so something very special to me. In 2015, I helped found the permanent LGBTQ tour at the museum. It was the first time a major museum in London had added a volunteer-led history and objects tour relating to uh, our community uh, to its permanent schedule. Since then, we've seen 1,500 people on tours. We've won two major awards, and the team of volunteers who lead the tours, we are the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea Ambassadors of the Year, which is pretty good (laughs) for a a very small but dedicated team. My name is Tony Mollett, and I volunteer as a tour guide at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And among the regular tours I do is a monthly LGBTQ tour of objects and works of art within the museum. 
So I'm someone who identifies as LGBTQ and I feel that my own past experiences has helped my research on the collection. Uh, we have a poster in our 20th century collection called Kissing Doesn't Kill. And that's from a 1989 uh, poster by the artistic collective Grand Fury. It depicts couples of various sexual orientation and races kissing and is a pastiche of a famous Benetton advert. Uh, Grand Fury was the artistic arm of the American gay activist group ACT UP, who used direct action in the 1980s to highlight the government and media negligence about AIDS. They were instrumental in transforming public and media perception of the epidemic from something people were reluctant to discuss to one that couldn't be ignored anymore. The tours run at 4pm on the last Saturday of every month and uh, we believe that LGBTQ-themed programming is possible within a museum context. The tours explore gender and sexual identities through a selection of objects, but I think what they really do is they give people who visit the museum, regardless of their sexual orientation uh, or gender, uh, a general sense of identity and ownership over the museum because, well, we've got a very good following. A lot of people come through and I think the thing that they take away is the fact that their story or their interpretation of an object or, or what they should, you know, what they personally feel about something is a legitimate and valid response to, to different things. So there's no such thing as a right or wrong when you, when you come on the tour. And I think that's the thing that uh, the tours are great as well insofar as the guides can choose their own object, so they, they play to their strengths. It's what makes the experience personal and intimate rather than a didactic learning experience. We want everyone to come away having learned something, but more importantly, to have a great afternoon. The whole point of the tours is to go beyond the binary and make people aware of a non-heteronormative narrative that goes back hundreds and thousands of years and covers all cultures and covers all parts of the world. I said that we get to choose our own objects. So for me, as an Australian, my objects do take a slightly antipodean turn, possibly for the worst. I always like to make sure that I include this massively oversized hat uh, in the shape of the Sydney Opera House, which has, uh, it's got tool making the sea. Um, there's this tiny little shark with a diamante studded teeth uh, in the corner as well. It was worn by Dame Edna, who's possibly the closest thing you're going to get to Australian royalty. Hello, possum! Let me look at you! You've aged. You have aged tragically. And yet I'm still the same. It isn't fair, is it, darling? Actually actual Australian royalty. Um, I do have the pop princess herself, her wardrobe rather, gay icon Kai Minogue. Uh, that, that also makes an appearance. There's a sheepskin covered chair, there's a boxing kangaroo, and uh, on the, the mirror there's a, a very nice note written by her sister Danny, scrawled in lipstick in the most Australian possible way that you could wish a thespian or an entertainer good luck, which is to say, chookers. There's also one more thing I want to mention. It's by post-punk designer Lee Bowery, um, who is from Melbourne, which is where, where I'm from as well. Um, but he's from a, a suburb called Sunshine, which we rather <laughs> dismissively called Scumshine. He had made this beautiful costume for Michael Clark's uh, dance piece called Because We Must. 
So if we go from top to bottom, it's this shimmery, glimmery piece of sewing masterpiece. Uh, we start at the top with what the museum calls the balaclava, but I call the gimp mask uh, made from grandmother's curtains. There's a corset, which if you think about the fact that it's used for dance, it must both be tight and loose so that uh, it's a corset, but you must be able to dance at the same time. So really well constructed with this little cape on the shoulders in the same fabric. So grandma's curtains again. And if you just follow this pink highlight through from the chest down to the navel, just a little bit lower, there's this fantastic pink sequined codpiece with matching tights that go just above the knee in pink sequins as well, in a few different shades, but with this sort of fiery pattern, which is just divine. It's beautiful and uh, I think is worth the trip alone, but uh, you get other things as well. But uh, it is just one of the most extraordinary things uh, in, in the museum. So in recent years, there have been quite a few big ticket exhibitions that have a great appeal for LGBTQ plus audiences, such as Kylie Minogue, Image of a Pop Star. David Bowie is that exhibition is one of the most well-attended, in fact, is the most well-attended exhibition we have in our history ever. And Alexander McQueen, Savage Beauty, just utterly gorgeous exhibition. We've also had several Friday Lates now that have been gay-themed, and I've had the great honour of <laughs> producing dance works for these, alongside some fantastic companies like Ballet Central and The Place London Contemporary Dance School. It's really nice to be at a grand old institution like the V&A and be joined by other arts organisations who are just as equally committed to the idea of safe spaces for all. I mean, that's the thing that we're all here for. It's to create diverse and inclusive arts for all. And the other great thing about these events is the fact that for them, the museum unfurls the rainbow flag and we literally fly the flag from the top of the museum as well. So at the V&A Museum, we actively support and recognise and discuss LGBTQ matters and issues. We've served as a national hub for LGBT History Month for many years now, and as this year is the 50th anniversary of partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in this country, we can look at how far we've come, but we also live in quite interesting times, and we can also see how much further there is for us to go. Across the museum sector at the moment, there is a lot of hubbub about how we respond to those wider societal issues, immigration, rights of women, LGBTQ plus people rights as well. And also uh, another really uh, important topic of discussion to me as well as a son of refugees and uh, a, a hopeful immigrant of this country, um, BAME or black and minority ethnic inclusion as well. And, you know, that statement that gets bandied around quite a lot, a nation divided on issues. There's a lot of things that we need to really look at how society is uh, currently moving, being shaped and uh, be part of that dialogue. So I think the, the V&A LGBTQ tour really does remind us that LGBTQ plus people are a part of everything that the V&A does. And it is a lovely way for the museum to make a very clear and permanent statement to all LGBTQ plus visitors. Come and join us in our rainbow fabulousness because you are accepted, respected, and you are welcome. Thanks for listening to episode one. You can catch episode two next week. 
The podcast was brought to you by Sasha Coward, Russell Dornan and me, Sean O'Boyle. And thanks to Morris Kelleher for help with the production. You can find Queering Museums on Twitter at Queering Museums. <laughs>